May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So this past Wednesday, even though most of us could not uh, meet as we normally would, um, we did begin the season of Lent. We had Ash Wednesday. We began our 40-day journey with Christ into the wilderness that we call Lent. Now, most of us here in San Antonio, um, in most of Texas, really, we began our Lent stuck at home due to the uh, severe ice and snow. Um, Nevertheless, the word Lent means spring. (laughs) It did not feel like spring. It does today, but it did not (laughs) when we began Uh, when we began our Lent this year. It's from an old English word that means spring. But for most of the rest of the Western church, uh, Lent is known by its Latin name, Quadragesima, which is a reference to the 40 days of the season. And our season does, of course, end with Easter Sunday. So as far as we can tell, um, the tradition of keeping Lent as a time of fasting and prayer, this special season, it began as a preparation period for new converts who were going to be baptized on the Easter vigil. They'd be baptized um, in the evening on the Saturday before Easter. And so they would spend these 40 days in fasting and in prayer as they're ending their time of catechesis, as they're about to begin their new life as Christians. And in those days, depending on where you were, you might have spent as many as three years in that time of catechesis. And if, uh, if this was in those days, you would have been dismissed at, 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 the, um, at the offertory to go, I guess after the homily for us, yes. After this, <laughs> you would have been dismissed and we would have sent uh, one of the deacons to go be, catechize you um, because we had communion only, even witnessing communion was reserved only for those that had been catechized. Eventually, what happens is that the rest of the church, the whole church, joins with the catechumens in this period of fasting, praying, and repentance. And we really do kind of remember our conversion and, and at this time. So that's, that's part of, we all join with those catechumens, join with those learners as we move towards Easter. Our gospel reading for this first Sunday in Lent is St. Matthew's account of our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. So please turn to Matthew 4, verse 1. You can find this on page 126 in your prayer book or on page 759 in your pew Bible, if you've got the pew Bible. 126 in the prayer book, 759 in the pew Bible. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the opening verse of our passage tells us that the temptation occurs after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. And so this is, of course, the origin of using the 40 days of Lent as a period of fasting. And you'll note that the, that the devil was quoting Psalm 91 at our Lord, which is, which is why we used uh, Psalm 91 as our introit and our, and our tract this morning. And it might seem odd to use the passages that the devil is using in our liturgy, but the fact is Psalm 91 is still scripture. The devil might have misused it, but it doesn't make it any less true. And indeed, we're called as Christians to, to, to use the scriptures in a way that is consistent with the will of God, not twisting it like the enemy did. In fact, Psalm 91 is a um, classic passage for both spiritual warfare and a prayer of protection. Uh, traditionally, in the Western church, we would sing it as part of our Compline, our, um, our late night prayers. One of my favorite psalms, even though we didn't have our, our, uh, our uh, bulletin today, I was like, I, I know that one. That's, that's one I know. <laughs> Despite the devil's best efforts, our Lord resists the temptation and he's victorious over the enemy. Indeed, we see that it was the Holy Spirit himself who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. That's what we read in verse one. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That means our Lord went there specifically to fight Satan. This was not an attack of opportunity on the devil's part. And our Lord's victory here shows his faithfulness and his worthiness for the mission for which he had been sent. In fact, what we're going to see if you continue on in Matthew chapter 4 is that immediately after he comes from the wilderness, Jesus begins his ministry. This victory that our Lord wins here is in contrast to two pivotal Old Testament events that parallel Jesus' temptation. First, we have Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden. And second, we have Israel's 40 years of trial in the wilderness. St. Matthew here is showing us that Jesus is the new and better Adam and that Jesus is the new and better Israel. So you'll recall that our first parents were also tempted by the devil back in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord had given Adam and Eve dominion over creation and he had given them free reign over everything with one exception. They were not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in the form of a serpent, the devil wraps up temptation to disobey God, to break this one commandment. He wraps it up in the lie that Adam and Eve would become gods. They would be able to judge good and evil independent of God. They would become independent lords of creation if only they would listen to the serpent rather than God. Now, the problem isn't that they wanted to know good and evil. The problem is they wanted to know good and evil on their own, without God. And of course, we know the story. Our first parents take the bait. They buy the lie. With this original sin, all of humanity becomes corrupted by Adam's sin. 
since Adam was the covenant head of humanity, that means he represented all humanity, human nature is therefore infected by his first sin. Now, sometimes you'll hear folks kind of jokingly say, gosh, I'd love to go tell Adam you know, and Eve what they, you know, what they did wrong. You know, I would have done better. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> That's part of what it means that he's, that he's the covenant head. We would have done the same thing he's, because he was that covenant head. Human nature is then infected by this first sin. Sin becomes a cancer that ruins all of us. So yes, we follow Adam's example, but we also become fallen by nature because of his sin. Article 9 of the 39 Articles of Religion puts it this way. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, but is the fault and corruption of the very nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, And therefore, in every person born into the world, it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. What a terrible state to be in. What a dreadful consequence. But our Lord Jesus becomes the second Adam, the first of a new mankind, where the first Adam fell and took all the rest of us with him. The second Adam resisted, and with that resistance, He wins for us all life instead of death, redemption instead of damnation. You notice how similar this first lie that the devil did, this first lie the devil gave to Adam and Eve, how similar that lie is to the third temptation in our gospel passage. Satan similarly offered Jesus independent glory and power if only Jesus would worship the serpent. But Jesus knew that true glory, true power, comes from being united with God and God's purposes. Because that power belongs to God, not to us. And indeed, our Lord Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Since he's forever joined our human nature to his divine nature, that incarnation is forever. He is now forever one of us. That means that one of us is on the throne. God became man, and therefore a man is seated on God's throne. When we're united to Christ by faith and baptism, we're given a new nature, a redeemed nature, and we become destined to be co-heirs with our Lord Jesus Christ. That dominion that Adam and Eve gave away The Lord got back for us. In the same way, our Lord became the new Israel who fulfilled the mission of the first Israel. You may recall from in the the book of Exodus that Israel was on the brink of the promised land not too long after the actual Exodus, right? But in their unbelief and distrust of God, they end up being punished with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Despite the miracles that God had shown them in the Exodus, despite God's provision of manna in the wilderness, they looked at their own strength rather than than at God's strength 
when the 12 spies brought back a report of giants in the land. You remember this story. They sent the 12 spies to, to see, to look at the land. They were right about to enter the promised land. And the 12 spies came back and says, there's giants here. We can't do it. And they believed it. Because in their own strength, they couldn't do it, right? They needed God's strength. And they were supposed to look to him rather than themselves. So during the next 40 years, the Exodus generation constantly falls into idolatry and sin again and again. And largely that's because they're putting their trust in something other than God, other than the God whose hand they had seen with their own eyes. Now the next generation does get into the promised land, but that pattern of idolatry and faithfulness is never broken. Ultimately, Israel failed to be a kingdom of priests and failed to be a light to the nations. But instead, Israel becomes corrupted by those nations, by their gods, to the point where they lose the promised land and are sent into exile. The first temptation in our gospel passage was similarly for Jesus to trust himself rather than God. If you're hungry, make these stones bread. You can do it. The second temptation was similarly to presume on God's provision and protection rather than be faithful about it. Go ahead and do what you want. God will protect you. This is exactly what we see the temptation that Israel had was. But once again, we see that our Lord Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. Our Lord showed his trust to be in the Father and in the Father's will. Our Lord showed the long-term vision rather than taking the shortcuts offered by the devil. Because really that's what's going on with these temptations. The devil is saying, skip to the end, skip to glory. Don't go through all this trouble. Don't go to the cross. Grab your glory right now. But our Lord takes the long-term view. He does it the right way. In that victory, we see David's heir becoming the true Israelite, the true king of Israel, who fulfills Israel's mission. And in him, that mission ends up succeeding. Jesus would bring the light of God's word to the whole world. And through Jesus, the whole world would be reconciled to God. The borders of the promised land get extended to all of God's people. God's people would become faithful because they are united to God's faithful son. So it's fitting that we would begin Lent with our Lord's victory in the wilderness. You know, Jesus' victory comes from uh, looking to God and to God's word rather than to worldly wisdom. It comes from resisting the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And through his victory, we then have the ultimate victory as we're united to him. He both empowers us and provides that perfect example for us in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that's why we use Lent as a time of fasting, prayer, and repentance. As our collect says, we use this time to subdue our flesh to God's spirit. We teach our flesh that it is not in the driver's seat. 
We learn that our lives as Christians are not lives of indulgence to our whims or to the devil's temptation, but rather these are, we, that our lives are lives submitted to God in obedience and in holiness. But most of all, we learn that this comes by God's grace. As we prayed in the collect, give us grace to use such abstinence. Because you see, Christ has already won the victory by his fasting and temptation, just like we sang in the Great Litany a few minutes ago. Christ has gone before us. He has blazed the trail. He's our new Adam, our new Israel, so that we may become new men and women and the new people of God. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.